Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic q and I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We're recording this podcast on Jan- January the 11th, 2021. This is our first conversation of the year with Dr. Greg Poland, our vaccine, virology, and infectious disease expert from Mayo Clinic. Uh, it's wonderful to see you again, Greg. We have a yeah. lot of uh, we have a lot of uh, listener questions today, particularly Good. about COVID vaccines. Those are always the best. Happy New Year to you and to our listeners. Happy New Year, Greg. Both you and I got a great Christmas and New Year's gift, didn't we? We did. About a week ago, I got my first dose of COVID vaccine, had no difficulty with it at all. And I hear there's some good news for you too. That's right. This morning at 7 a.m., I received my first dose of the COVID vaccine and um, um, had no reaction to it so far and feeling good and exciting to see how progress is being made in getting our healthcare workers vaccinated. It really is. It's a blessing to get it. I feel privileged. I do too. I was very excited. Yeah, to be the beneficiary of that kind of science. Well, Greg, let's jump right in. I have a lot of questions for you today from our listeners. Okay. Uh, One of the questions that we've gotten is that um, these new strains or variants that we've heard about showing up in the UK, South Africa, and now within the United States here in Minnesota, we have five cases, in fact, what do you know about these strains currently and will the vaccines um, be effective? So uh, what we know about the strains is that there's more than one. We're talking about multiple strains. This is exactly what an RNA virus does when you pass it uh, or transmit it through human after human after human. So in, in many ways, we, we are the cause uh, of this by not practicing all the things we've talked about over the last year. The consequence are these new variants. The question is, are the variants of a nature that they would evade vaccine immunity, convalescent human plasma, or monoclonal antibodies? The early answer is yes, that's possible, particularly against monoclonal antibodies. With convalescent human plasma, not quite sure yet whether there's any evidence of that. With the vaccines, it's very early, but we do have a preprint study that was just released. This happened to be for the Pfizer vaccine, but they developed a virus that has the same major mutation that people are worried about. Not all of the mutations, but one of the major ones. And if anything, the uh, sera from humans that had been vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine had a better immune response, not a worse one. Could that change? Possibly. Uh, We don't yet have data for the other vaccines, but I expect the same sort of data. But I think what we should use this as a warning that we need to take all of the precautions that people have talked about so that we don't have these variants arising that could at some point in the future threaten our well-being after receiving these vaccines. Well, Greg, there is a lot of excitement around the vaccines being released and distributed, but honestly, a very small number of people so far, if you think about it logistically, have received uh, their vaccine. And so there are a number of people still waiting and COVID rages on. There were many, many deaths last week within the United States. And so there's been some talk um, in the UK, for instance, about giving 
individuals just one vaccine so that everyone could get one vaccine before people started getting their second one. And I'm wondering, is this an effective strategy? It's a, it's a very good question. And it's a strategy born of being in this very hyper exponential phase of the, of the pandemic. So you're, you're sort of forced to consider things you otherwise wouldn't consider. But here's the danger. What we know in terms of safety and efficacy followed very carefully designed clinical trials. As soon as you deviate outside of those clinical trials, you're, you're in a position where you don't know. So would that strategy have desirable effects? If so, for how long? Would it lead to any safety issues? I don't necessarily think so, but thinking is one thing, data is another thing. So I, I think one has to be very cautious about that, but I'm also sympathetic to an understanding that when you are overrun, what other options do you have? And that's one of them on the table that they're looking at. Uh, there's some discussion in the US as to whether we might go that way. Um, that awaits, you know, decision makers to, to make those decisions. But um, I think the, the lesson behind it all is the only reason it's being considered is because of how fast this is spreading among a population that's traveling or not wearing masks or not maintaining physical distance. And uh, those things turn out to be very, very important. So I guess some of the thought being that uh, it appeared that people uh, may have um, some resistance or antibody after having one vaccine. So if we could just spread it out and make sure that everybody gets one, um, that may be more beneficial, the, but it sounds like that may be a risky strategy. Well, that, you know, that's the idea and the risk is in not knowing is it risky uh, or not. So, you know, I, I, have, I have sympathies toward thinking that way simply because we have no other options uh, at this point. But what we don't know is if you do that, uh, yes, it appears that you're protected for that very short interval before you got the second dose. Will that be true past that time point? Will it give people a false reassurance? Would it lead to any safety issues? Those are all unknown questions. So Greg, we have another question from a listener about the timing of the second vaccine. Moderna, I think three weeks, uh, cool. Pfizer four is what's being recommended. Or I may have that wrong, you correct other me. Way, other way around. Other way around. Okay, excuse me for that. Um, thanks for correcting me, Greg. And so the question was, if the individual is unable to get their vaccine at the right timeline, how important is that? And will they... Um, have a, a second vaccine that is not efficacious? Will they not be um, immune if, if they don't receive them both promptly? It's a very good question. And again, we don't have data for that. Those trials were very carefully controlled. You know, there would have been people that got it maybe a few days, a week late, but not enough of them to know whether that affected the ability to protect them or whether it would add any safety concerns. What we can say, is with every vaccine except one, with every vaccine we have, the longer intervals do not impede 
you're developing a maximum antibody titer to it. The one exception to that is the shingles vaccine, Shingrix. And in that case, when you go past the recommended interval, the antibody level doesn't get quite as high, although it appears that people are still protected. So again, that's something that's being considered by governments simply because of the exponential number of cases uh, that are happening. But we have to admit, if, if and when we do that, that we don't yet have data. So you would tell this listener just to, to get their um, vaccine as close to the, the date that Correct. was um, assigned to them as possible. Correct. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the shingles vaccine because we have another question coming up in just a little bit. But I wanna ask you one more question about um, the dual dosing of the vaccine first. The next listener would like to know, does the vaccine have to come from the same manufacturer? Could they have one vaccine from one ma manufacturer and the other vaccine come from another? Does that matter? It's, it's actually a very important and insightful question and a, and a good question for that reason. Unfortunately, and I feel like I say this a lot, but we don't have any data. I mean, nobody has studied that. Those studies are starting, but at this point, I, I would be speculating. Um, it seems reasonable that if you got one vaccine of a certain type, let's say an mRNA vaccine, and got a second dose of that same type, it seems logical that would work, but that that's not an opinion with any data behind it. It makes it a little more concerning to me when you go from one vaccine type, like an mRNA vaccine, to say a second vaccine type, such as an adenovirus vectored vaccine. And we just, we just don't have any data on that at this point. Greg, we have a question now about what the vaccine is intended for. Is it intended to decrease the incidence that a person becomes infected with uh, COVID, or is it intended to decrease the transmissibility of the virus to other individuals? That's a, that's a really good question. And it, and it has to do with this concept called sterilizing immunity. So there are some vaccines we give that develop really high neutralizing antibody titers so that as soon as your body is invaded with that virus, that antibody neutralizes it. So you never get infected, no chance of transmitting it, anything like that. Good example would be the human papillomavirus vaccine. Other vaccines, and in fact, most of them, do not produce sterilizing immunity. An example would be influenza vaccine. So we develop antibodies to that. It prevents us from getting sick or as sick as we might otherwise, but it doesn't prevent us from getting infected with it. It's, a, it's an infection permissive vaccine. At this point, that's what the COVID vaccines are. We don't have good evidence that they would prevent asymptomatic transmission. We have good evidence that they prevent infection in us or symptomatic infection or severe infection but we don't yet know about transmission. That's, that's the ideal, um, that's the holy grail for every vaccine, but we don't yet have that data for these vaccines. Now you've made me very, very curious, Greg. Can someone who gets the flu vaccine pass the flu on to someone else? Sure they can, yes. And, and it all depends on the health of their immune system 
and the, uh, the uh, height of the antibodies and the quality of those antibodies to that influenza strain. But yes, clearly that does happen. So everyone so the main, needs their own vaccine. And that's yeah, so that, you know, the main important point about getting the vaccine is you do decrease transmission. You don't prevent it entirely. And you do prevent the complications of influenza. So that's the key point. It's very interesting. See, I've already learned something today. <laughs> Greg, our next question from a listener is about immunity. They're wondering if you can... Um, give any estimate of what the minimum uh, length of duration of immunity from the vaccine is versus um, someone who's contracted COVID uh, and been ill from it? Yeah, again, really good questions. I feel a little bit like a broken record here, but you know, re remember that we really didn't start immunizing anybody with these vaccines until sort of the March-April timeframe. So we don't have any long-term data. Similarly with people who, let's take the very first person in the US who might've gotten infected in January, February timeframe. We're just now getting to one year on that. So what can we say based on those timeframes? Well, um, newest data published seems to be that people have at least about six to eight months of protection if they've been infected. That's one reason why we delay them uh, 90 days before getting their vaccine. It's not a safety issue, it's just they're protected during that time period. So we'll wait until we have more of a supply to immunize them. Well, what about vaccine? Well, we don't know yet. Um, will this be long-term protection, midterm, short-term? Uh, my suspicion, is that likely we'll have to get booster doses. That's a guess at this point. We don't have data for that. Uh, the question will be at what interval? Every year, every two years, every three years? It's, it's really impossible to know at this point. What we can say is that people who get infected with the seasonal coronaviruses, the one that caused the common cold, um, people do lose immunity to that and do become reinfected. Now that can take two, three or more years, but it is clear they can become reinfected. Greg, when you say that we don't have data yet, that uh, presumes that we can study this. So what do we do? Are we waiting for people to get reinfected? Are yes. we testing for antibodies? Can you test for antibodies after the vaccine to see whether it's still working? Yes, uh, so exactly right, Helena. And, and the ideal is that we define what's called a correlate of protection. In other words, I can tell you that if you have an antibody level of 10 or above against hepatitis B, you're protected. What is that level for COVID? We don't know yet, but once we know that, these studies will happen very quickly. The studies are occurring now. In other words, we've been able to identify a handful or two of people around the world who have gotten reinfected after having a documented first infection. Uh, how common is that? And at what level of magnitude? We don't know yet. I've been involved in a study where they're giving some vitamins and, uh, uh, and zinc to see how that affects uh, the development of COVID. If I have a vaccine, as I had my vaccine this morning and develop antibodies, part of the study is to measure antibodies. So are the antibodies that I would have if I had 
developed COVID naturally, do they look the same uh, to a scientist as the antibodies that come from a vaccine? Really good question, Helena. And, and that is actually very important to us in testing some of the questions you've asked and in determining whether somebody had infection or vaccination. So when we, when we give these vaccines, remember the ones being used in the US are all what we would call S only, spike protein only. So the only antibody that you develop after the vaccine is antibody to the S protein. That's different than if you get infected with the virus because we can measure antibodies against S protein, N, E, M, and other components of the virus. So we can distinguish them. But it does lead to an interesting dilemma for some of the diagnostic tests used to diagnose COVID. The FDA released a warning Friday, I believe it was, indicating that some of those tests could lead to false negatives because of these variant viruses that are circulating. So we would wanna be sure that somebody who had symptoms compatible with COVID was getting a test that would allow us to detect even the variant virus that might infect them. So it gets more and more complicated with it time. Does. I'm getting more and more confused as we talk. No, I'm just kidding, <laughs> Greg, these are great. I have one more question that's very similar to uh, a initial question, but this listener and had a particular question specific to their father. And so I thought I'd ask you to address it just to sure. give a specific answer to them. This uh, individual says that their father is 88 with COPD. He's counting the days to his first vaccine appointment, mm. but wondering about the efficacy of the first shot what will happen if he doesn't get his second one in time? What if there's not enough vaccine for him to get a second dose? So how effective is the first one and how long can he go maximally before he gets the second one and have it still work? Yeah, well that, you know, I'm very, uh, feel a great deal of empathy toward that, that questioner. And uh, I, I'm sure that he or she is, is quite worried about their, their father and with good reason with, with lung disease, being a male, and being older, those are all risk factors. So uh, the very first thing I would say is that's a situation where you wanna take every precaution possible that we've talked about, hand, space, and space. That's really, really important. Second thing is at least right now, the policy is that if you get your first dose, they will reserve a second dose for you. So at least right now, that needn't be uh, an additional burden of concern uh, for, for our listener. In the event that they do make the decision to give everything we have, one thing that's interesting and that I think helps in these discussions is that over the weekend, vaccine manufacturers announced that they will be able to produce significantly more doses of vaccine than they had initially anticipated. So my my guess is at least in the US, and we're very fortunate here, at least in the US, I think people will be able to get their vaccine doses on time or very shortly after that. And I think the, a, a short delay of a week or two is very unlikely from a biologic perspective to have any negative uh, or Ill, Ill effects. So I remain very optimistic that 
post-holidays, we're going to be able to roll out vaccine faster and faster and faster and get people the vaccines they need. That's really reassuring, Greg, and we can definitely empathize with this is a really oh, stressful and anxiety provoking yeah. time for people as when am I going to get my vaccine um, and how will I know and and so it's 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 really anxiety provoking for people yes, and we is. are sensitive uh, my, to that. My daughter's a mental health professional and uh, this is what she deals with all day long and the additive burden of everything that COVID has done to stress levels and you know, to, to people who are uh, particularly vulnerable. And I would just encourage them. Vaccines are coming. The questions like our listener asked are questions we're aware of and take seriously and are trying to get answers to. But I think we're going to be okay. I, I really do think that with the uh, number of doses that are coming out, with new policies that are coming out, that we are going to be able to provide a vaccine to everybody who wants one. That'll, that's good news. Yeah. Greg, here we are for my shingles vaccine. We'll see if I can say Shingrix fast <laughs> five times. I don't think so. So this listener contracted shingles around the middle of December and was treated for it. Uh, most of the symptoms are gone now. The individual is wondering, should they go on to receive their COVID uh, vaccine or should they get their Shingrix vaccine first? And um, how far apart should those vaccines be? Really good question. It's got a lot of technical details around it, but I'll kind of simplify it to say this. Once somebody has had an episode of shingles, we would generally say, wait to get your first dose of shingles vaccine for six to 12 months. And the reason for it is that that infection actually boosted their immunity. And so they're going to be safe for that period of time. Now, we don't know the nuances here, but there might be some exceptions in somebody who had had, you know, an organ transplant or had some other immune problem. So the answer to, to her question is absolutely, as soon as you're eligible for your COVID vaccine dose, get it. You are safe in doing so, no issues there. The shingles vaccine, you can delay for six to 12 months. Now, the other thing is that the clinical trials were conducted so that nobody got a COVID vaccine dose if they had gotten a vaccine, any vaccine, in the 14 days previously. And after getting that dose, they would wait 14 days before getting any other kind of vaccine. So that's where we have data. We don't have data for anything outside that. In this case, I think our, our listener is safe to go ahead and get a COVID vaccine will delay the shingles vaccine. That's great to know. This last question, Greg, we've talked about briefly on other programs, but I think it's really pertinent to address it now that we have people in different waves getting their vaccinations. Um, this uh, listener would like to know, what should our interactions look like with individuals who have been able to get their vaccines, such as masking, social distancing, et cetera, and supposing that uh, a member of the family, maybe they're elderly and they've been able to get their vaccines, maybe they're a healthcare worker and they've been able to, do those interactions look different now for individuals who've been vaccinated? Boy, our, our listeners ask superb questions. <laughs> That's a really, really good and a, an extremely practical 
uh, question that actually keep has us thinking, a, Greg. Yeah, that actually has a lot of science behind it. So uh, well done, listener. <laughs> um, what we can say is this: we know that people seven to ten days after their first dose had relatively high levels of protection against severe disease. We don't know about mild, moderate, or asymptomatic. And then, of course, a week or two after that, depending on which vaccine they got, they got their second dose. 14 days after that, that's the number that we all hear about 95% effective. But several things there. That means five out of 100 were not protected. And that was under the very careful guidance of a clinical trial. When vaccines are used in the field, so to speak, they never work quite as well as in a highly regulated clinical trial. So my guess is that the real efficacy is gonna be slightly less than 95, somewhere in the 95 to maybe 92, 90%, some, something like that, because we're gonna be immunizing people who were not included in the trials and who may not respond as well. And that gets to the point of this really excellent question. After getting our vaccines, we do everything we're doing now. I wanna say that again, because I, I get questions from my patients, from other doctors and nurses. After getting our vaccine, nothing changes, nothing. We still wear masks out in public. We still maintain physical distancing. We still wash our hands until, and it looks like it's gonna be about 80%, of people get their vaccines. And that of course is dependent on that the duration of immunity will be long lived and we don't know yet how long. So for all of those reasons. Now, the other thing that can happen of course is it's quite plausible that somebody could get their vaccines, still get infected asymptomatically and then transmit that to a more vulnerable member of the family or a friend or a workmate or something. That's why this really important thing, after you're getting your vaccines, nothing changes. You're still wearing a mask and keeping distance until we get enough people immunized. And that looks to be around 80%. Well, so that led me to another, um, a little bit complex question for you. We know that people who've been immunized 90 to 95% efficacy or so, what about someone who's had um, COVID uh, naturally and they've now recovered? I, I know that they should do their hands, face and space uh, because we wouldn't know who they were in public, but uh, in, in theory, could they uh, be safe to go without these measures would, since they've I already would, had COVID? I would not at this point okay. um, because we don't know the, the completeness of their protection or the duration of that protection. And we have certainly gotten well-documented reports of people who have gotten COVID, recovered from that, and then got reinfected. And in a few cases, uh, had more severe disease and in one case died with that second infection. Now that was a really immunocompromised older uh, female. Um, so I don't know that that represents everybody, 
but uh, the recommendation is no, we take the same precautions, whether you had COVID, whether you've gotten your vaccines, until we better understand and until enough people have immunity. Hands, face, and space. Hands, face, and space is the way to go. And then we're gonna have to add to that a, a catchy word for vaccine. That's right. <laughs> we'll have to think on that one until next yeah. time. Maybe listeners will have suggestions for us. That would be great. Let's have a competition. <laughs> that's right. Well, Greg, that's a wrap for today. That's all the listener questions that I have for you. Anything you'd like to add at the end? You know, I, I just want to encourage people. Um, you know, we've been under these precautions for what feels forever. It's only been a year, but that's a long time in our, in our lifespan. And I know that the stress of the unknown is real and it's important and it does have effects on everybody. And I just, I would just encourage our listeners, hold on, these vaccines are coming. These vaccines are good vaccines. The efficacy of them has been outstanding. There are a few instances in which we have to take precautions like people who have had anaphylaxis. But outside of that, the safety profile of these has, has been excellent. And our way out of this, the only eventual way out of this is that we produce so-called herd immunity, levels of immunity of around 80% or better. And that's gonna happen by vaccine. So it's coming, hold on. Everybody who wants to get a dose of vaccine will eventually be able to get that. And I think it may happen faster than we think. Thank you so much, Greg. That was quite a whirlwind today. <laughs> Thank you and congratulations. We've both gotten our first dose. Yes, wonderful. We're hoping for the same for each of our listeners. Amen, amen. Our thanks again today to Dr. Greg Poland for being with us for our COVID-19 updates and to talk about vaccinations in particular. I hope that you learned something. I know that I did. We wish each one of you a wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well.